Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us tonight. And Lord, I just thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. I thank you for those that are watching on live stream. They'll watch this later or hear it on the radio. Lord, may you minister to every heart. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen. So turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Hopefully you got an outline. So let me catch you up just a little bit. So we know that this letter, like 1 Chronicles, is written to the children of Israel who were coming back from 70 years in bondage in Babylon to re-inhabit Israel. And 1 Chronicles is all about the life of King David. And, and 1 Chronicles ends with David's death. 2 Chronicles started with Solomon the son of David, who has now taken over as king. Uh, Solomon was probably a teenager when he became king over Israel. In chapter 1, we saw uh, that he asked for wisdom. God asked him, what, would, what can I give you, Solomon? I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. But he basically said, what, what can I give you? How can I minister? And he said, I want wisdom. And the Lord said, you know, you could have asked for riches, you could have asked for power, but you asked for wisdom, so I'm going to bless you with all of it. And so Solomon, we know certainly early on, was a very wise man. He was used by the Lord to write many of the Proverbs in the book, uh, uh, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, other books of the Bible. And so he was used by the Lord. Now, last week we saw the beginning of the most important thing Solomon's going to do in his entire life. And what that is, is build a temple. And so we know that David wanted to build a temple. David's heart was broken because he was living in a beautiful palace and the Ark of the Covenant and where people worship the Lord was a tent. He's like, how can God be in a tent when I'm in a palace? And so he wanted to build a temple, but the Lord would not allow him because he had been a man of war. And so what he did allow David to do was basically get everything in place to help Solomon be ready. If you were here last week, we saw that he already had the blueprints. And in the end, Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, uh, he reached out to him and was able to get the final things he needed to build the temple. And so as we come to tonight's chapter, he's going to start building the temple. He's finally going to put it into place. He, by the time we get here, we'll see it in tonight's text. He's been king for four years. So it took him about four years to gather all the materials. Some believe getting the logs from Tyre down to him took about three years. So he's been waiting to have everything in place. They've raised up the craftsmen. They've raised up uh, the guys who are going to quarry the stones. They've raised up uh, those who over, would oversee them. They've got uh, an army in place, and they're all ready to go. And now we come to chapter 3. So grab your outline if you have it. And let me just encourage you, when I do an outline, so if you're, if you're not, haven't been here a lot, or maybe you're not even familiar with this term, but what I teach inductively. What inductive Bible study means is, it's really, and I, I teach people how to teach that way, and almost all of our guys here teach this way. It's observation, interpretation, application. What does it mean? What does it say? You know, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? So what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? So whenever I do an outline, it's always applicational. What I mean by that is, I always give you an outline for hopefully something you can take home with you. So based on what we're learning tonight, what are some things that can impact my life and your life? How can we apply what we're learning about, you know, King Solomon building the temple 3,000 years ago? How does that impact my life today? And so as we go through the outline, understand I'm taking things we learned from the text, and I'm giving practical applications you can take home with you. So I'll title the message, there's joy in the house of the Lord, because there has not been a house for the Lord for over 400 years. And now... The house for the Lord is finally going to be built. By the time we come to tonight's text, they've been out of bondage in Egypt for 480 years and still hadn't built a temple. They've been in the land of promise for 440 years, had not built a temple. It's finally going to happen. So I tell them the message, joy in the house of the Lord. And here are the four points. Number one, God is in control. Isn't it good to know that no matter what happens around us, God is in control? And we're going to see in tonight's text... Three amazing things that all happen on the same mountain. We'll see this in the first two verses. Three things that happen on Mount Moriah, and they happen 
at separate times, very distant apart from each other, and you can see the sovereign hand of God all over it. We're going to see first Abraham taking his son Isaac on, up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Then King David, that's where he finds the place after he had disobeyed the Lord to repent and to make a sacrifice. And then 2,000 years after David, it's that same mountain where Jesus was crucified. See, God is in control. Abraham, Isaac was a picture of the Lord. What David did when he made his sacrifice was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is all over this chapter tonight. It's a thousand years before he's born, and Jesus is all over this chapter. So God is in control. His ways are perfect. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing happens by chance. It's all according to God's plan. Number two, we are just tools in the hands of the master. We're going to see that God's going to use Solomon, and God's going to use him because Solomon made himself available to the Lord. It would be very, we're going to see that Solomon's going to get off track before it's over. We're going to, you know, when we fast forward, you know, toward the end of this book, we're going to see Solomon is just really falling away from the Lord. But see, the greatest ability is availability when it comes to the kingdom. Just being available. Lord, here I am. Use me. Pray for divine appointments and watch what God will do. I just got home from uh, my company. We had a, a Western United States conference and they had it in Las Vegas, my favorite. I had never actually never really been there before. But God brought about just many divine, I prayed for divine appointments every day. And I even had one in front of the entire group when the VP of our company was given a rah-rah speech. And he said, I want to uh, tell me three things, you words you want to lose from your vocabulary and three things that you're really focusing on now for, the, you know, for your future. And people were saying, I don't want to ever complain anymore. I don't want to say can't. I don't want to do this. How about words you, you, you focus on? And so... I was the last one to go and praise God for that. I just raised my hand. There's three or 400 people in there. And I just said, look, things I'm focusing in is that God is in control and that our God is faithful and that no suffering is wasted. And a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And I said, most of you know, in the last little over a year, my mom went to heaven, my brother went to heaven, and my son went to heaven. And the Bible says we grieve, but not as those without hope. And because of my faith in Jesus Christ... God has given me peace in the midst of the greatest storm, and my continual focus is always to glorify and honor Him and to be a godly witness to my coworkers and my customers. And I went on for a little longer than that. Hard to imagine, huh? And, and, uh, and then when I finished, he had like 10 minutes left in his speech. He goes, well, I think we're going to just end it with that because I don't know how to add to that. And he came over and gave me a hug. And after that, I got to talk to people all over the place about the Lord. Guys, we just want to be available. Amen. Just give me an opportunity, and then when the opportunity comes, take it. Amen? And so let's just pray for that, divine appointments, right? We're just tools in the hands of the master. We get to be a part of God's plan. How amazing is that? That God would use people like us. Inviting somebody to church, sharing your faith with a friend, praying for somebody, pray for people by name, and watch what God will do. Number three, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're going to see that the temple tonight, by the way, if you flip your page over on the back, that's what the temple looked like that, we're, that Solomon's about to build. If you look on the back of it, okay? And so it's pretty, pretty amazing, amen? But you know what's amazing about it too, though? In those days, it's all stone on the outside. And from the outside, it looked a lot like a lot of the other buildings that were there. Not quite this grand, but a lot of the buildings in Jerusalem at that time would have looked similar to, to the temple. But you know where it looks radically different? On the inside. And we'll see that tonight. The inside of the temple would blow us away if we were able to see it. It was covered in gold. It was beautiful and rubies. And, and see, that's kind of a picture of us. See, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And outwardly, we look just like everyone else. But on the inside, we're radically different because the spirit of the living God lives inside of us. Amen? The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And from the world's perspective, we may look, and I pray we don't act like the world. And I pray that we do live different than the world. But at first glance, we may not look that different. And at first glance, even though the temple was certainly the grandest building there and it was very noticeable to the people and the children of Israel, the outside is not all that spectacular in a sense. But boy, on the inside, which we'll look at tonight, it's radically different. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit 
By the way, we're all a work in progress. Isn't that good to know that God's not done with you yet? Can I get an amen to that? I'm so thankful again, justified at salvation, just as if I never sinned, being sanctified, being set apart unto the Lord and molded more into his image until the day we are glorified in heaven. So God's not done working on us until we get to heaven. And I'm thankful because I've got, God needs to do some more work on me. How about you? And I'm glad that we're works in progress. There's nothing more priceless than all that the Lord has done for us. And we need to know that we're fighting a spiritual battle. You know, every day there's that battle between the spirit and the flesh and our own walk with the Lord. But there's also a spiritual battle that takes place around us. And then finally, in him there is strength. As we spend time with the Lord, we will grow stronger. There's going to be two pillars that are outside the, you know, outside of the temple itself that they walk into. And as they walk into him, one of the temple, one of them is called in him is strength. That's the name of the pillar. In him is strength. You know, the, the reason that uh, so many people are struggling and because they're trying to do it on their own. And, and you know, and when we do it on our own, we're going to fail. When we try on our own, you know, we, without him, we can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's begin there. In verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 3, every week I plan on doing at least two chapters, and then I get to 40 pages of notes, and I'm like, that's not happening. So we're going to just look at one chapter tonight. So let's begin there in verse 1. Again, there is joy in the house of the Lord. God is in control. And again, let's take a look there. It says, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. So he had planned it all out, and it had taken him, it had taken David many years, and then he prepared Solomon, and we're going to see later that it's in the fourth year of Solomon's reign that he finally starts to build the temple. Now, we can say, well, why didn't he do it sooner, and why did it take the people so long? But here's the reality. There's a lot of people that plan to do stuff that never do it. And if you talk to people, they'll talk about their walk with the Lord and how they want to get more involved at church, or they want to start serving more, or they have a burden to reach their neighbors for the Lord, or they want to you know, have, more, have a better devotional life. And there's all these things that they plan, but then it just never happens. And as believers, I pray that we would go beyond thinking about serving the Lord or planning to serve the Lord at some point. At some point, we need to step out of the boat. Amen. You know, Peter, Peter sunk in the water, but at least he got out of the boat, amen? Most people don't. And so he finally, it comes to this place where we're going to build the temple. And again, as I said, 480 years since delivered out of bondage through, uh, you know, the Passover, angel of the blood of the lamb and the, sh- blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross passing over, they're delivered out of bondage in Egypt Then they don't go into the promised land. You guys remember that? It was only an 11-day journey from Egypt to the land of promise. They ended up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. Then they enter into the land. God gives them victory. And here we are 440 years later, and they're finally building the temple. Now, again, this is God's perfect timing, but it's also a reflection on the sad part about how the Lord can so easily in our lives get moved back in the priority list if we're not careful. There are people that stopped going to church when COVID hit and haven't come back yet. I get calls from some of them. Like, oh, we really miss you. I'm like, you know where I am? Amen. You need directions? I can show you how to get there. You know where I'm going to be on Sunday. Amen. But here's what happens. You know, when we, you know, it's when you get into a, a, a habit you know, if you do something long enough, it becomes your new normal. If you stop going to church, or if you stop praying, or if you stop your devotionals, you stop reading your Bible, right? You're going to blink, and before you know it, that's the new normal. That's the thing that is taking the place of the Lord. And all I can say is I'll exhort you and encourage you, and I have people come to me and say they're busy, and I'm thankful that I have a full-time job, because I can say with anybody here, I'm as busy or busier than anybody who goes to this church, because I pastor a church, I work a full-time job, and I want to tell you what, and I've got a beautiful wife that I love to spend time with and kids and grandkids, but you know what? God's a priority, and if he is the priority, you will always have time for him. Amen? Amen? And I'm talking to the crowd that's here on Thursday night in the freezing cold, so it's probably not you guys, okay, that are, that are blowing it on this program. So they're going to build the house, but notice where they're going to build it, and this is so important. Notice that it says here, on Mount Moriah. 
Mount Moriah. Back in 1 Chronicles 21, David had commanded that they take a census of all of Israel. He wanted to number the people. Now, numbering people in, in a sense is not necessarily wrong, but God had warned kings not to number people, not to multiply horses or multiply wealth. And so when David did it, his motive was to see how great his kingdom was. You know, and it's sad, but I actually see this a lot in, with churches, with pastors. You go to a pastor's conference, and you're there with hundreds of pastors, and you know, the church I pastor in Santa Cruz got to be pretty large, but they will say things to you like, oh, where's your church? How many people are going there? And they'll determine how well the ministry is going by based on how many people are there. People get caught up in numbers. God doesn't care about any of that. Can I get an amen to that? But here's what happens. David numbered the people. So God came and told him, okay. And God gave him some options for what the punishment would be. And we saw that David finally went up to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And a man had a threshing floor and he asked for it. And the guy said, I'll just give it to you if you're going to make a sacrifice. And David said, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. And so he paid for the threshing floor and there he made his sacrifice unto the Lord. And the place that he did it was on Mount Moriah. Now, a thousand years before that, Abraham, we know the story of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham was in his 90s. And in those days, if you were unable to have children, it was considered a curse. And so they were cursed, and Sarah was in her 90s, and they had not been able to have children, and certainly that ship had sailed a long time ago. Matter of fact, it says in the text when the angel came and told Abraham, you're going to have a son, he goes, uh, have you seen my wife? And, and they refer to each other as good as dead. That's not a great compliment, right? You know, I'm, I'm like older than dirt and my wife's as good as dead. How are we having children? When he went and told Sarah that an angel came and said they were going to have a child, she laughed. You know what laughter, you know what means laughter? Isaac. They named their son Laughter. Because she laughed when they said they were going to have a child. And God was promised, promised Abraham, not only are you going to have a child, but through him, you're going to bless all the world, right? You're going to have uh, descendants like the stars in the sky. And then some years went by and he got impatient and he slept with, had Ishmael, Hagar had Ishmael. And now that whole Middle East that's going on right now, that's the descendants of Ishmael and descendants of Isaac. They've been fighting ever since, right? But the point is that Abraham finally did have a son. And I believe his son, I, don't, I can't verify this, but his son certainly was not a little child. A lot of times when you see Abraham and Isaac, you know, videos or things about it, people, they, they show Isaac as being a little boy, and he wasn't. I, I personally think he was probably 33 years old. And why would I think that? What happened at 33? Who, who? Jesus died on the cross at 33 on that same mountain. But I, that's just Pastor Day's opinion, okay? But he takes him up the mountain, and by then, so if he's 25 even, or 20, that means his dad's a buck 20. Who's going to win a fight between a 120-year-old man and a 20-year-old boy? 120-year-old guy's in trouble, amen? Unless he's been swollen working out or something, right? So what happens, here's the point I'm making is, we see Isaac going up the mountain, and he's carrying the wood on his back just like Jesus carrying the cross. And as they're going up the mountain, he says to his dad, you know, we have the wood and, you know, we have the fire, and the, but where's the sacrifice? And his father says to him, God will provide himself a sacrifice. You know, not for himself. God will provide himself a sacrifice. And we know that Isaac is laid down and he freely lays himself down, just like our Savior did. Because he could have ran away, he could have wrestled his dad, but he was willing to lay down his life. That's a picture of Jesus Christ, amen? And then what happens? As Abraham has the knife in his hand, knowing that through him all the nations of the world are to be blessed, through that son was going to be uh, descendants like the stars in the sky, but he just trusted that later it says in the Bible that, that he would raise his son from the dead if necessary, and he was ready to take... to. to kill his own son. And the Lord stopped him and said, now I know you hold nothing back from me. And he provided a ram was caught in the thicket. So that was on Mount Moriah. David making the sacrifice before God was on Mount Moriah. And you fast forward 2000 years and Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. Our God is in control. Amen.
And the reality is that I love to talk to people who will, and I'll, tell, and I'll say this to anybody here, and, I, and you can hold me to it and call, on, call me on at any time. You show, you show me any chapter in the Old Testament and I will show you Jesus. He's in every chapter. He's in the word of God. History is his story. It all points to him. Amen? Every sacrifice, everything that's done in the Old Testament, all of it is pointing to the one who's coming. By the way, just as a way to keep a timeline, if this will help you, from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years, roughly. From Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years. From Jesus to us, to today, 2,000 years. The Bible says a day is to 1,000 years as 1,000 years is to a day. So if that's true, we're about to enter day seven. And the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and how long? Six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, and the Bible says we are going to be raptured, and then we will rule and reign with him upon the earth for a thousand years, the Sabbath day when we come back with the Lord. The Bible rocks, and no man knows the day of the hour, but we are in rapture season. Can I get an amen to that? And last Tuesday proves even more, because people are just, you know... In the last days, men will call good evil and evil good. So Mount Moriah, gotta love that. I hope you never forget it. I hope every time you hear it, you'll remember how God had his hand all over it. God knows what he's doing. God knows the timing in which it will be done. And again, there's hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that all point to the Lord. When God responded to the sacrifice, when David made the sacrifice, he knew that the Lord accepted it because he brought fire down from heaven. And when he brought the fire down from heaven, David knew this is where the temple needs to be built. So he was the one that passed that along to his son. And now his son is not only building it, but he's using the plans given to him by his father on the place where his father pointed him, who the Lord had pointed David to it. And guys, we all need godly people to speak into our lives. And again, Mount Moriah was, was again, the, one of the most famous places, and uh, if uh, we get our trip together for Israel next year, we will teach the crucifixion looking up at Mount Moriah, and the right after that, we'll teach on the resurrection, and we will go into the tomb where Jesus was laid, and he's not there anymore. Can I get an amen to that? So they went to Mount Moriah at Jerusalem, and it says, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So God used David's disobedience and then his later repentance to teach David. And you know what? I think that God, isn't God still doing that today in our lives? Amen? That when we disobey the Lord and then we repent, God has a way of teaching us through it. There can be consequences that you know, still remain, but God is growing us as we go through difficult times. So this is the place, again, where Abraham offered Isaac. It's the very place where David had made, offered up sacrifice. It's the place where Jesus will be crucified. And it's now there where David, or where uh, Solomon is going to begin to build the temple. You know what's interesting? It was David's sin that required the sacrifice to bring an end to its consequences. And it was our sin that required a sacrifice, Jesus in the same place where David made his sacrifice, to bring an end to our sin's consequences, to forgive us and to redeem us and make us new creations in Christ. Amen? So each time it was overcoming sinful behavior. So this is when the actual construction begins. All David's prior preparations and plans were in anticipation of the actual beginning of the work. And one again could plan and prepare endlessly and never begin to build, but Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Verse two, and he began to build the house on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. If you go read 1 Kings chapter six, it's kind of a parallel to this chapter. And that's where we read that it says that it had been 480 years since they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. So all that time had passed by. And again, they feared the giants in the land. They, they listened to the spies. Uh, there were so many reasons by, while this kept getting postponed, while this kept getting pushed back. While they, while they didn't go in and, and take over the land and do all that God had called them to do. And what I would say is this, because I hear this from people a lot, 
They feel like they missed out on doing what God wanted them to do. Well, as long as you're breathing in and out, it's not too late. Amen? I mean, God's not through with us. We're indestructible until God is through with us. And just because we feel like, well, I haven't done anything up to this point, it's too late for me to be used by the Lord, well, that's not true. Again, God still wants to use each and every one of us. So David had wanted to build the temple, but God would not allow it. Now, again, by the way, they spent 430 years in bondage in Egypt. 430 years. Then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now 440 years in the land of promise. And now they're going to finally build the temple. What's interesting, this temple is going to come down. And when it comes down, it's going to be another 400 years before it's built again. Boy, it takes these guys a long time to build anything, doesn't it? It's amazing how slowly they move. But again, I love just the fact that our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And our God is not done with any of us yet. Praise the Lord. So if you were, again, here last week, we know that, again, previously that he had used the king of Tyre to help him. And many believe that one of the reasons it took him till the fourth year is because they cut down so much wood to build it. And then what they had to do is they had to run it you know, down the river and then block it all up on, on, like on rafts and then tie it all together and then drag it off. So it could have taken them, many historians believe, as much as three years to cut all the trees down and get them to him. So it wasn't like he was napping. He was just waiting to gather all the materials. But now that they were there, it was time. So there's a clear sense of urgency on the part of Solomon to build the temple, and he wants to do it well. Remember, we're going to see this as we go through the text that he's going to spare no expense. He's going to give the best he has in every way. And we're going to see just how elaborate this tabernacle is. And what's amazing about it is, it's going to be the most beautiful building maybe ever on the inside, and almost nobody ever got to see it. Because the Holy of Holies was only seen by the high priest on what is now called Yom Kippur, but the Day of Atonement. And he was the only one they got to enter in. It's only the guys who built it to begin with. And then when the, once a year, when some would go in, they would see the most beautiful part of the temple. See, the good news for us is that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that people get to see what God can do in the lives of his people. So they designed the temple. They're ready to go. It's time to start doing what God had called them to do. Remember last week, 80,000 80,000 workers, 70,000 workers, and you know they had 100, 100, over about 180,000 total that were out serving and preparing to build this temple. And again, they were all a part of God's plan. Remember, he even reached out to Tyre and said, I need a craftsman who can work with bronze and gold and silver and wood and linen, and I need somebody. And we're going to see that how ornate the inside of this building is. But see, when God calls something to be done, he will raise up people and give people to be a part of getting it done. Amen? And that's why we need fellowship, because none of us can do everything that needs to happen for a church to function, nor does God want us to. It's not about being a one-man or a one-woman show. It's about being faithful to the Lord. So Solomon was given clear instructions by his father for building the temple. God revealed instructions to David. David gave them to Solomon. Then it says this in chapter 28, a few weeks back, that David gave Solomon his son the pattern for the porch of the houses, therefore, and the treasuries thereof, and the upper chambers, and the inner parlors, and the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, and all the chambers round about it, the treasure trees for the house of God and the dedicated things. So point number one, God is in control. When Abraham offered Isaac, it was always God's plan that a thousand years later, that that would be the place where the temple would be built. And you fast forward another thousand years after that, and that's the place where Jesus would be crucified. Point number two, we are just tools in the hands of the master. Now notice, they're going to get detailed here. And I want you to know this. Our God is a God of order. You know, it, you know uh, a lot of churches lose their way when they're so driven by experience that they forget what the Bible says. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. Can I get an amen to that? 
So if you're in the church and it's confusing and people are barking in the spirit and rolling in the aisle and, you know, losing their minds, that's not the Lord. Why? How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit does not bring confusion. He brings, first of all, the Holy Spirit's always pointing people to Jesus. Amen? Always. Not to a man blowing on people and waving a coat over their head. Can I get amen to that? They're not making a man. It's always pointing to Jesus and glorifying his name, not anybody else's. Amen? And we're going to see that God's a God of order. And here we, here we go. Notice it says here, this is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits. Now, if you look at that building on the back, it looks pretty big, and certainly the temple itself is just the, the part back here. So the temple itself is just this portion back here. This is the outer court where people would gather, and then it was a, there was the inner court, and then there was an outer court on the round, and it's not all that big. It's actually, the temple itself is only 2,700 square feet. Now here's what a cubit is. A cubit in those days was the length between your elbow and the top part of your middle finger. So it was never exact, and often they would make it universal, whatever the king's measurement was. But usually when people were measuring it, they would just use their arm. Okay, there's one cubit, there's two cubits. So, when you, so a cubit is about a foot and a half. So when it says there, going back to where it gives us the, the measurements, it says it was laid with 60 cubits. That's 90 feet. 90 feet, 30 yards. Okay? So 90 feet. And then it says, so that's the, the length. And then it says... And the, uh, by cubits, and it says the former, and then the width is 20 cubits. So 20 cubits is 30 feet. So 90 by 30. And again, you know, if you took any math, you know, and paid attention, 90 times 30 is 2,700. It's 2,700 square feet. So that's a decent sized house, but it doesn't sound all that great for a temple. Now we're going to see the temple has a lot more going on around it. And certainly the temple itself dominated uh, Jerusalem. Uh, when you go to Israel, they have these models of the whole city, and it's the dominant, most, uh, you know, the thing that stands out more than anything else because everything else that surrounds it. But the temple itself, where the sacrifices were made, where the holy place was, and where the holy of holies was, was only about 2,700 square feet. So why so small? Because it's not a gathering place. Crowds didn't go there. Only the priests went into the temple. And we'll talk more about it as we get there. But when you walked into the temple, there was two rooms. First of all, there was a court where they had the bronze laver and the bronze altar. The bronze laver is where they brought the sacrifices. It was a, a bronze in the Bible always pictures judgment. And so they would bring the animals and they would slit their throats. They would spill the blood. And, and what they would do for the burnt offerings, they would tie the animals down. And the altar was about the size that a, a grown man could lay on. And they would tie it by its feet and by its, you know, its four feet in the case of an animal. And then they would burn the, you know, they would slit its throat, take its blood for the sacrifice, and they would burn the, the entire animal on the burnt offering, which was a sweet-smelling aroma in the presence of the Lord. And then the priest would then go from there, and he would go over to the bronze laver, which is a picture in my mind of baptism, right? This is a picture of the cross, Right? And then you, they would come over and they'd be covered in blood and they would cleanse themselves. Right? We've been covered by the blood of the Lamb and we've been cleansed by the work of the cross of Calvary. And so there's the bronze laver. So then from there, they would have that first door. And only the priests could go in, and there were certain priests whose jobs were to go in and maintain what was called the holy place. So there's the holy of holies, we'll talk about that in a minute, there's the holy place. Well, when you walk into the holy place, on the left-hand side, you would see the golden lampstand. Golden lampstand was to remain lit 24 hours a day. And so these guys would come in and keep it lit. And these priests would come in. And then on the right-hand side, you saw the table of showbread. They'd have 12 loaves of bread, one representing God's provision for these 12 tribes of Israel. And so they had the table of showbread. And so they would go in and bake the bread and, and change it out. And then they would, uh, the, the priests would feed on the old bread once it had been replaced. And I'll tell you what this all means in just a moment. And then you would go to the back, and there was a veil that was there. But before you went through the veil was this little box and it was the altar of incense. 
Now, the altar of incense, they had incense that had to burn 24 hours a day. So these priests were coming in, making sure the golden lampstand was lit, making sure the showbread had been replaced, and they would go and make sure that incense was burnt. Now, what would that incense do? It would pour over the top of the veil and into the Holy of Holies, and it was a picture, again, of prayer. Incense is a picture of prayer. So what does this all point to? So the, the bronze altar points to Jesus dying on the cross. The bronze laver, again, baptism and being cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. When you walk in the, the golden lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. When you look at the table of showbread, he is the bread of life. Amen? And then the altar of incense, where is Jesus right now? What's he doing right now? What's he doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing for us? He's praying for us. So that altar of incense is a picture. Now, when you, we're going to get to it, and so I'm just telling you all of it ahead of time. We'll get to it, and you'll, you'll understand it. So then you go into the Holy of Holies. Now, the only time they could go in prior to Jesus' death on the cross was the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest got to go. And so the high priest would go. They would make the sacrifice. He would bring it into the Holy of Holies. Now, when you came into the Holy of Holies, what you found was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, at this point, when they're building the altar, the Ark of the Covenant has been in a tent, first of all, for a while, in another place, in part of town. Some guy, you know, remember somebody touched the Ark and dropped dead, and then people didn't want to touch it, and they stayed away from it. Well, now they're building a place for it to be permanently. Well, when the temple was built, they'd go in, and what you would see, and we'll see this in tonight's text, there's... there's the ark itself that had cherubim on each side and they, their wings touched at the top. There was a box with a, a golden seat, a bronze a seat above it, and it was the mercy seat. And it covered what was inside. Now, what was inside of that box were three things. Aaron's rod that budded that proved that he was the high priest. Well, Jesus is the great high priest. Second thing was a jar of manna. Jesus is the bread of life. He's our provision. Amen. And then thirdly, the Ten Commandments, because he is the word, amen? And he is the fulfillment of the law. So they would have the mercy seat that would cover it. And so the guy that would come in, and we'll also see, uh, some of you may not know this, but in the back, back wall, if you will, of that Holy of Holies were two angels, two other cherub, cherubim, right? And we're going to see that their wings spanned 20 feet. So they were from one wall, one portion to the other wall, from one wall to the other. And when you would walk in, you'd have these two you know, cherubim that had been carved, right, staring at you, and you'd have the cherubim on the top. And so they would come and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb in the center part of the ark, and that would be the day of atonement, atoning for the sins of Israel, and pointing again a year forward toward the Messiah who's coming. Amen? Now, what's amazing about that is it's also a picture of the resurrection. And you've heard this if you've been coming here any length of time. When they ran into the tomb on Resurrection Sunday... What did they see? An angel at the foot, an angel at the head, blood-stained stone, clothes in the middle. Again, the ark was always pointing to Jesus. The bronze laver was always pointing to Jesus. The, the altar was pointing to Jesus. The table of showbread's pointing to Jesus. Amen? The golden lampstand's pointing to Jesus. And the altar of incense pointing to Jesus. Guys, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. None of that points to Muhammad. None of that stuff points, because they, they claim that they, they're, you know, they are descendants of Abraham. And they say Ishmael was the chosen one. Well, if Ishmael's the chosen one, show me where he rose from the dead. Can I get an amen to that? Show me what cross he died on and show me how any of that points to him. Jesus is the answer for everything. Amen. He's the way, he's the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. And so this temple being built, this is a big deal. It's taken 480 years for it to happen, but it's finally happening. And Solomon is finally, he, this is the greatest thing he's going to do in his life. Because you know why David wanted the temple built? Because he didn't want them to lose sight of the Lord. He didn't want them to take their eyes off of Almighty God. When you're walking through Israel in those days, through Jerusalem in those days, you could not miss it. It was the biggest thing there. It stuck out every day as you walked through town, as you rode by on an animal, you'd look at Jerusalem and that's what you would see. And guys, that's the whole point of why our country's such a mess right now, because we've lost sight of Jesus, amen? And we don't have enough things being lit up to remind everybody that he and he alone. Don't say Merry Xmas to me ever in Jesus' name. Can I get an amen to that? Don't take Christ out of Christmas, amen? 
Let's be under, don't say happy holidays. Stop that. Merry, happy Jesus' birthday. Let's just do that. Can I get an amen to that? Let's proclaim his name. So the temple's being built. This is so important. We don't want our people to forget about the Lord. We don't want them to forget about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why the temple needs to be built. And it's pointing to the one who's coming. The Bible rocks. Amen? So then he says there, so the foundation's been poured. And by the way, that's where you always start. A foolish man does anything other than build foundations. My first house that I bought, my wife and I, we, built, we bought the house. We put a bunch of money down. They were building it. We were living in an apartment while it was being built. And all of a sudden, halfway through, they stopped building them. And then we went by and thought, what happened? And we found out that the foundations on these houses that were like 80% built were bad. And so they gave us our deposit back, and then they ended up burning the houses down in Lethal Weapon 3. That's a true story. So they burnt the houses to the ground because the foundation was no good. Guys, the foundation for us is Jesus, amen? It's the Word of God. And so the foundation was the first thing that they poured. And they poured it according to the plans that God had given them, and God's going to honor that. This is our verse 4. And the vestibule that was in the front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long. That's 30 feet. Across the width of the house, and the height was 120, he overlaid the inside with pure gold. So, outside of the temple itself was a vestibule, or really like a porch. And it was like 30 feet long, and so this was the kind of the inner court where you, where you would go to enter into the building, and it's all being laid out and measured out according to the plan that God had given uh, David. Now, what's interesting, the Bible tells us that the temple itself is a picture of heaven. And we're going to see some of those pictures of heaven as we go through this tonight. So the porch, the entrance hall was on the east side of the temple. On the other three sides of the temple, they literally had like uh, almost like small apartments or compartments built into the wall where the priests would stay, where the priests would sleep, where the priests would, you know, bathe, and, and then they, they would serve right there in the temple. So these were all built in to the walls of the sanctuary. Then it says in verse 5, the larger room, he paneled. First of all, the, the inside room, they covered it in gold. And we'll talk more about that. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. And then it says in verse 5, the larger room, he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold. And he carved palm trees and chain work on it. Now, see, I love palm trees, and that's biblical. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> right, Jack? You know better now, amen? Um, Jack hated palm trees. He loves them now. But what I love about this, the larger room he's talking here is the holy place. The larger the two rooms in the temple, you have the holy place, and you have the holy of holies. And he says that holy place, that from the outside, again, it just looked like stone. But when you got on the inside... It was paneled with cypress. So what they did is it was all stone. That's why these guys are working in the quarry. Got 80,000 guys quarrying stone. Why? Because that's what the whole building was built. But on the inside, they put panels up and they covered them in gold. So it was completely covered in gold because, again, it was a place where the Lord, a picture of the Lord would dwell. And so and they had carved palm trees and chain work on it. So they've got all these people with different gifts and they're each using their gifts to bring about God's perfect plan. And again, I love that they have palm trees. I was talking to some of my coworkers, and they were asking a question like, I said, they were talking about where do you like to go on vacation? I said, if it doesn't have palm trees, it's not vacation. <laughs> doesn't count. I'm a tropical guy. If, if, there, if it's cold outside, that's not a vacation. That's a burden. I'm not interested. Amen? It says there, and he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was gold from Parvaim. Now, we don't know where that city is, but some of the ancient writers had said this was the most pure gold you could find, and it, was so, and it was so pure that it almost had a reddish hue to it, which I find interesting. So when you walked into the place, it was covered in gold, but also had all these beautiful stones on it. We also know that uh, the tabernacle itself had angels weaved into the ceiling. So when you would walk in to the tabernacle, you, you were surrounded by pictures of angels. And we're going to see the same thing here as we get through the, the temple itself. 
So he decorated with precious stones. This is one description among many that gives us an idea of how beautiful the temple was and how Solomon spared no expense making it beautiful. And the reference to precious stones, again, also could include uh, mosaics on the ground that were inlaid with precious jewels. Now, again, what's amazing about this, it was the most beautiful place on the planet and very few people ever got to see it because all they saw was the outside stonework. And you know what? The people that don't know the Lord, all they see is the outside of us. And I pray that we would represent the Lord well. We would be salt and light. But we'll never fully grasp the amazing and beautiful work that the Lord's done inside of our hearts. Amen? And that's the thing that God sees. And that's the thing that pleases the Lord is the work that he's doing in us and through us. If we truly know the Lord and understand all that he has done for us and continues to do in us, how can we possibly give him less than our best? Amen? People say that to me all the time. You know, I'm just too busy. I talk to my, I talk, you know, most of you guys know I have a job. I have 200 accounts. I have several who say, well, you don't want to come visit your church, but Sunday's my only day off. And I said, well, yeah, if you keep rejecting the Lord, you're going to have a whole lot of days off. For eternity. Amen? And they go, wow, Pastor, that's kind of rough. I go, bro, eternity, smoking or non-smoking, right? Pick one, right? Where do you want to spend eternity, right? Guys, this is a vapor of time on this planet. And if you're too busy, you know, we, we, if we tell God we're too busy our whole life and we want no part of him, when we die, he will give us what we've asked for. Amen? I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. And then you're going to spend eternity with nothing to do with him. Amen? So my exhortation, my encouragement for all of us is we not lose sight of that. Notice it says here, and he overlaid the house, verse 7, overlaid the house with beams and doorposts, its walls and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the wall. So these are the angels. So in the tabernacle, they were weaved into the linen. And now that this is a permanent building, there's angels being carved into the walls. Now, why is that? Because in heaven, what are the angels doing right now? What are they doing? What are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. Amen? Holy, holy, holy Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so there's a heavenly picture inside the tabernacle as the presence of God is surrounded by angelic hosts who are carved into the walls. Why? Because that's exactly what's going on in heaven. Now, there are some angels. There's a spiritual battle that takes place, but there, the angels themselves that are in heaven are around the throne of God. And guys, we don't worship angels. We worship God, but we can worship with the angels. Amen? We get to join the same choir and sing with them as they sing to the Lord. I just love the pictures throughout Scripture. There's the one with Elisha when he's surra- they're surrounded and his, his number two guy is panicking. And like, why aren't you panicking? And he says, Lord, just let him see. And they were surrounded by a great army. And then God opened his eyes. And what did they see? They saw f- angels on fiery chariots surrounding the other army. And all of a sudden, the guy's like, I get it. Guys, that's our God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And our God is greater than any enemy that we will ever face. Amen. So point number two there, we are just tools in the hands of the master. See, God has the plan already in place. He just wants us to be available. He just wants to say, you know, Lord, use me for your kingdom and for your glory. If you want to hug somebody, use my hands. If you want to encourage somebody, use my lips. If you want to minister to somebody, use your money that's in my wallet. Can I get an amen to that? Like, this is for your kingdom, for your glory, and having a heavenly focus. Let's impact eternity with the time we have left. Point number three, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says, verse 5, verse 8, excuse me. And he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and the width 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. So the holy of holies, the one where the ark was, where the angels were, right? And the angels against the wall, it's 30 feet by 30 feet. It's 900 square feet. And when they would walk into that veil, that in the temple itself was, was, was huge. It took multiple priests to hang it. And when they walked into the, the holy place, it was this small 30 by 30 room, 900 square feet, probably a third of the size of this tent, or half the size of this tent. I'm bad with square footage, but 
not very big, and they would walk into that room, and there they would go, and that was the place that they would worship. So this is the Holy of Holies. He made it, but notice it says there, this is incredible to me, again, the room of the house, the Ark of the Covenant, again, the high priest could enter in, only again on that one day a year, and that veil was there, and again, the incense would pour over, and the Bible tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're the temple, you know what's the word, that word temple there? That says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the same word for the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies for the Holy Spirit. We are the holy place where the Holy Spirit dwells. He lives inside of us. He'll never, if you're born again, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will convict you when you're sinning and he will comfort you when you need to be comforted. And praise God because I need to be convicted and I need to be comforted. How about you? I need to be convicted when I'm sinning because I don't want to wander too far off. Lord, grab a hold of me, convict me, and draw me back into yourself. And when I'm hurting and I'm broken, I need to be comforted, and he is the one who comforts us all. Now, gold represented royalty. And so what's going to happen in that room? It was overlaid. Look what it says how much gold it is. It says there, 600 talents of fine gold. Now, outwardly, it's made of stone. Most buildings were, but inwardly it was unique. And again, I'll get to that in a moment, but you know, we as Christians outwardly look like everyone else, as I said, but on the inside of the believer's heart, uh, we see the beauty of a work in progress, growing in godly character, being transformed day by day, more and more into the image of our Savior. You know, man looks on the outward appearance, the Bible says, but God looks on the heart. People were looking on the outward appearance of the temple, and God was looking on the inside, because he saw that picture of heaven. The work that God is doing in us is priceless. And again, the book of Ezekiel tells us there's going to come a day when God's glory would abandon the temple. You know, AD 70, the temple will be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed before that by Babylon. And it got destroyed again. But before it was even destroyed, do you know that God abandoned the temple? It's in Ezekiel. So they, he abandons the temple because they had lost their sight of the Lord. And once they lost sight of the Lord, again, it became just a building. And you know what? If we don't have the Lord, that's all we are. We're just empty, right? See, God created us to have a relationship with Almighty God. So we are the Holy of Holies for the Holy Spirit when we're born again. But until we know the Lord, we're spiritually dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our lives are empty and nothing else will fill it. Sex won't do it, drugs won't do it, alcohol won't do it, money won't do it, power won't do it, fame won't do it. There's nothing that can fill that God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. And so God created you to be the Holy of Holies. God created you to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And guys, if you don't have him, your life is empty, and it always will be until you surrender your life to him. Amen? There's no other hope. There's no other answer. Your flesh will never be satisfied. So it says there, this 30 by 30 room. It says it's overlaid with 60, 000, that's 720,000 ounces of gold in a 900 square foot room. I calculated that today. I looked up the price of gold. It's $1,760 per ounce. You multiply that by 720,000 ounces that's $1,267,200,000 worth of gold in a 900-square-foot room. It's a lot of gold. But you know what? In heaven, gold's asphalt. Can I give an amen to that? That thing that we value here when you get to heaven, we're not even going to notice the gold. But the, but the point is this, that this was the holy of holies. This was where... The, the, where Almighty God's Spirit dwelt. And so he was not going to give God anything less than his highest. Guys, it, it's never a mistake. You can't outgive God. And that gets abused by the name and claim it people. I'm not talking about give so you can get, and he's the holy Santa Claus in the sky. It's not what I'm talking about. But guys, we can't outgive God because if we gave God everything we have, we could never come close to what he's already given us. Amen? This doesn't get any better. The greatest beauty in a place where only the high priest could see it once a year. And do you know the Lord can see the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Amen? Holy Spirit is God. So God, look, there are two undeniable facts. There is a God and you're not him. But God does dwell in you. Amen? If you've been born again. Because the Holy Spirit is God. 
So in spite of all the value of the gold and silver and precious stones, what was really valuable had nothing, uh, had already left the building in the time of Ezekiel. See, that gold remained when, the, when, the, when God's presence left. See, but anything that the world can give us, if God leaves, then there's, it's of no real value when it comes to eternity. Now, check this out. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. That means these, these nails were $35,000 worth of gold per nail. I thought Home Depot was expensive <laughs> since the inflation. $35,000 worth of gold in each nail. Now, notice it says here, so again, what is he doing? He's sparing no expense. He's, he's giving the best that they have for the Lord. And again, no matter how much we give him, we count out, give God, and it ne it's never wrong to give to the Lord. We will never regret it. Amen? And then it says, in the most holy place, he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. So these are angels. Now, when you think of angels sometimes, first of all, don't ever think of that stupid Cupid. Can I get an amen to that? That's not what angels look like. And if you look in Revelation and you look how they describe angels there, uh, that's pretty gnarly, right? Talks about faces of a lion. And, and so the way that the angels look, they're awe-inspiring. By, the, by the way, every time you see an angel show up, what do all the people do? They get scared. Amen. When the angel appeared to John the Baptist, he couldn't even talk after the angel showed up, amen? When the angels showed up, they, they were struck with fear. By the way, our God is infinitely greater than any angel, amen? But just the, just the presence of an angel and just the, the, uh, the, so what do those cherubim look like? I don't know. But they didn't look like Cupid and they weren't these little goofy looking angels. I mean, you know, there was something that was awe-inspiring, and I can imagine the high priest only got to do it usually once in their lifetime. So can you imagine when you're the high priest and you walk in and there are these huge angels that wings touch from side to side. And they're staring, you know, it's just these statues of these angels, but it's the presence of God is there. It's such a powerful thing. It says there that their wings, the two cherubim are overlaid with gold and the wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits. So their wings were 30 feet uh, total in length from one side of the wall to the other. So you have an angel standing with his wings out and another angel standing with his wings out. And when he went from one end to the other, it covered the entire back portion of the Holy of Holies. And, and that's in addition to the two cherubim that were already mounted as a part of the mercy seat. So it's a picture of heaven, angels all around the throne worshiping God. Because again, the Ark of the Covenant represents, again, in a sense, the throne of God where God's glory dwelt. And what's it surrounded by angels, just like it's surrounded by angels in heaven. We know that the temple is a picture of heaven. And then it said, one wing of the other cherub was five cubits. Just read there, verse 12. And then it says the wall to the, so it talks about five cubits, five cubits, there's four wings. Verse 13, the wings of these cherubim spanned 20 cubits overall. They stood on their feet and they faced inward. So they're facing the ark. And again, like the angels are, they're looking to the throne of God. And that's where their focus is. That's where their passion is. That's where they're looking when they're praising the Lord. Verse 14, then it says, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen wove cherubim into it. So the veil was placed between the holy place and the holy of holies. The, it was very thick. But notice the four colors because everything in this is a picture of heaven and it all points to Jesus. So the veil, the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was blue. Blue represents heaven, right? The heavenlies. Purple, royalty, right? So when people in those days were in positions of authority and kings, they wore purple. And again, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords, amen? The heavenlies, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth and he lives in heaven. Crimson, what do you think that might point to? To what? His blood. His shed blood on the cross of Calvary. White linen, the fact that he is holy and righteous, and you know what? That through him, we've been made white as snow, but it points to Jesus as holy and righteous. And then the cherubims are the angels that surround him. So Jesus, like the veil, 
Only way into intimate fellowship with God. So you could not come into intimate fellowship with God unless you pass through the veil. And we cannot have a relationship with God the Father unless we come to him through Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Outwardly, we might look like the world, but the true beauty is seen in the heart of every born-again believer. And we are all works in progress But guys, that should not be an excuse. We should not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. We should not be satisfied living a lukewarm walk. We shouldn't compare ourselves to the worst people that call themselves Christians. We should look at how we compare to the Savior that suffered and died that we might have eternal life. Again, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and only because of him we can be made holy and we can enter into fellowship with the Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? What happened? It was torn. And when the veil was torn, you know what that means? It's not just the high priest one day a year on day of atonement going into the Holy of Holies. Now that the veil has been torn, if you're born again, you can enter into God's presence anywhere and anytime. And don't you love that? Amen? The older I get, the more I wake up in the middle of the night. I don't sleep a lot anyway. That's just kind of how God's built me. And part of that's because I need to study as much as I do. So a lot of times I'll sleep three or four hours a night. But what I love is when I wake up in the middle of the night, the first thing I think of is just sitting there and laying there and talking to the Lord. And you know what's great about that? You can talk to the Lord in the middle of the night and he hears you. Amen? I love that when I'm driving between sales calls, I will turn everything off. I'll either be listening to worship music or a message on the radio, or I'll just spend time talking with the Lord while I drive to my next appointment. And it's amazing. I'll have one hour between sales calls and I'll, I'll get there and I'll think, how did that go so fast? And I've been hanging out with Jesus. I'm so glad the veil is torn and we can enter into his presence anywhere and anytime. And do you know that there's nothing the Lord loves more than you coming to him? He's your Abba. I'm a dad. There's no way I would ever tell my kids you know, come and come. I want to talk to you. I want to, I love my, my grandkids. Come sit on my lap. I want to spend time. You know what? And that's what the Lord wants from you. Amen. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to have, you know, have a relationship with you. It's not about a religion. It's, he's not looking for, you know, a, a, some, you know, religious bunch of rituals. He wants you to be, have intimate fellowship with him. Final point. In him, there is strength. In him, there is strength. How many guys in the last six months have gone through a trial? Raise your hand. Okay, it's most people in here. And the reality is, as believers, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So in this world, we are going to go through difficult times. The good news is, we'll never have to go through them alone. The Lord will always be with us. Look at this final point. As we spend time with the Lord, we will grow stronger And again, real strength doesn't come from trying harder, but surrendering more. And he that overcomes, he says, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Look what it says in verse 15. And he made in the front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high. So 35 times 1.5, 52 and a half feet tall. Well, 52 and a half feet tall, these huge pillars in the front of the temple as you would walk in. He said, and uh, cubits, and the capital there was on top of each, there was five cubits. So on top of, you've seen like pillars, then on top they'll have this more real ornate thing that's around it, um, and it'll, it'll be decorated, so it's kind of awe-inspiring, and it's something beautiful to look at. And then it says, in verse 16, he made wreaths of chain work in the inner sanctuary, and put them on top of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of the chain work. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the, the way that the priests were dressed, there was always th- talked about pomegranates, pictures of pomegranates inside of their, their clothing. And then pomegranates, right, you'll see uh, are, are pictured on, on like these pillars as you're going into the holy place. Now, what is what, did, what do you know about pomegranates? First of all, I don't need, why do a lot of people don't even bother with them? Why? They're messy. And what color's in there? What does it look like? I mean, if I eat a pomegranate, I feel like I I look like I just delivered a baby or something, right? I mean, it's just just a mess. 
It's like a blood, like I just had, you know, gave surgery or something, right? And so I don't think it's by chance that the priests had pomegranates on their, you know, on the hems of their garments and pomegranate, because again, it's this, it's this fruit, right? And what, isn't that amazing when you think about it? It's something that bloodies, that's it's bloody, that's fruit. And the blood of Jesus Christ, there's nothing that's borne more fruit than that ever. Can I get an amen to that? So it's not by chance. God knows what he's doing. He creates all this stuff and makes me want to eat a pomegranate. So number 17. Then he set up the pillars before the temple, and on one right hand and the other one on the left, he called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, and the one on the left, Boaz. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot. If you look up what their names mean, what do their names mean? Jachin means he shall establish, and Boaz means in him is strength. So when they would walk into the pillar that was outside of the temple as they would enter into that court, what they would see is these, these pillars, and they knew their names, he shall establish, and in him is strength. Guys, the only way that we can have the strength that we need is to be fully grafted into him. In our weakness, he is made strong. When we die to ourselves and we're filled with him, then we can walk in the strength of the Lord. I just love that picture that, again, every time someone walked in the house of the Lord, they'd say, look, there he, he is. He shall establish. And there's in him, there is strength. One of the things in the Bible as we close, and so pillar is something that holds things up and keeps the roof from falling in. In the Old Testament, kings would lean on pillars or stand by the pillar or address the people from a pillar, just as Jesus will walk through, you, uh, walk through you to address others as a pillar, others will look to you. In Solomon's temple, the pillars had names, but the Bible says this in Revelation, that God promises to make us pillars. It says, he who overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God? And he shall not go more out. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is in Jerusalem. He shall come down out of heaven from my God, and I will write my name upon him, a new name. He wants to make some of us those who hold others up. That's what pillars do. Have you ever heard of someone use the term, he's a pillar in the community? Have you ever heard that before? And what are they talking about? Somebody who's a standard, someone who's strong, someone who holds other people up. And so not only do we see these pillars in the temple, but God has called us to be pillars who hold up and love and minister to others. Amen? So in closing, there's joy in the house of the Lord. First of all, God is in control. His ways are perfect. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing happens by chance. We are tools in the hands of the master. We get to be a part of God's plan. What a blessing. We get to be used by God. We get to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the holy of holies of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and we are the holy of holies where he dwells if we've been born again. And then finally, in him there is strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. You are indeed a great and awesome God. Help us, Lord, to be pillars for you, to hold others up, to die to ourselves, to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. Help us, Lord, to see you in everything because you are in everything. You're an all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God. And there's joy in the house of the Lord because you're here, because we get to spend time in your presence, because we get to know, not just know about you, but know you in an intimate and personal way. I pray for everyone who's here, minister to every heart. To those that are watching on live stream or watch this later, may minister to them as well. We lay our lives at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen.